Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour, and today is Wednesday, September 27th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that they start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's just a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. Here on MindShifters Radio, we hope people do that, all of that, soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please feel free to do so. If you're listening live, you can give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone. You can also, if you are... um, Listening through the archives, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. 
or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N.org. And if we get a comment or a question from you in that form, we will address it on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time we were able to do that so you can listen to the archives for your feedback. And we appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention with this work is to be a service. And that's just a whole heck of a lot easier to do when we know how these things are landing for people, what successes or struggles people are having with the tools, and or what questions people might have about how to get maximum benefit from the tools. So that's our offering. We are here to support people, and if you're one of those people who's been working to apply these tools in the lives and you have any kind of a question whatsoever, we would appreciate you sharing it with us, along with um, any kind of feedback about success or struggles, and um, also any kind of information or feedback about how it lands for you when we do certain discussions or readings um, in the past three or four days now. I have been reading from the book Choose Again by Diedrich Wolzak. And um, it's a book that he put together after... um, basically bringing himself back from the brink of suicide by applying what he learned from the Course in Miracles to the struggles he was having internally, to his depression, etc. And um, soon after doing that, people started asking him, how the heck did you turn your life around and will you teach me that? And within short order, he had a full-time practice as a coach uh, having never had any experience with that before. And that's grown to the point where he has still a um, an active practice and uh, a healing center, I guess you'd call it, in Costa Rica. So he has what he refers to as the six-step choose-again um, healing process and uh, or forgiveness process and it is to my eye and ear very close to the process that Dr. Michael Rice has made available to us in the reality management worksheet and since it's very similar at many levels and since Dr. Rice himself when I was first introduced to him and his work talked about how If we can learn something from a variety of different perspectives, the more different perspectives we can gain from learning something new, the deeper we'll understand it and the faster our understanding will grow. And it's in that spirit that I offer the uh, Choose Again book by 
Diedrich Wolzak and his six-step Choose Again worksheet. Essentially, trying to come at the same observations from a slightly different angle, slightly different wording, slightly different conceptualization, all of which is designed to help empower anybody who chooses to pick up these tools to create a healthier, more loving, more respectful, more productive, more preferable life experience for themselves. And that's, you know, big, big part of why we do this Internet show and how we are hopeful that it continues to be of benefit to anyone who listens and especially to anybody who picks up the tools and uses them in their lives. So we have plenty of time for any kind of comment or feedback on um, yesterday's reading uh, before we start up again, if that indeed is where people want to go. I... um, I think I mentioned that I've had some minor misgivings about reading some of the more upsetting parts of Diedrich's story because this, for me, um, what this Internet show has always been is a place people can come to get basically a kinder, gentler version of what you'll get in most other places, whether it's the news media or most of the spiritual teachers that I've been exposed to. And so I like to keep things on the upside and be presenting something that is positive and proactive and productive in helping people undo whatever might they might be experiencing as negative in their process. So no one has a hand up, so I will continue in, in the reading. I started near the end of yesterday's show reading in the book on the section titled Core Beliefs and Addiction. And I want to just back up and read that section again. There's five or six paragraphs that I'd already read, but I think it's worth um, reviewing since so many people are struggling with addiction in one form or another. And this section, as I mentioned, is titled Core Beliefs and Addiction. And Diedrich writes, When people come to see us with an addiction, they typically want to be talking about being addicted to substances. However, substances are never the issue. The substances are just the tip of an iceberg of feeling. We may feel long-standing tension in our body. We may feel desperately lonely. We may be chronically anxious or worried. Or we may feel angry and get angry at the drop of a hat. These are feelings. Feelings have a biochemical component. 
and we become addicted to these biochemicals. That's how we become addicted to the feelings. So where do these feelings come from? Our feelings are chosen by the beliefs we have about ourselves. Now, this is a core part of Diedrich's work. Michael Rice would say, you know, if we pour enough mind energy into a particular thought pattern, it creates that an emotion. That's why his worksheet says, you know, we understand that only my thoughts create my emotions. So the thought I'm using to create this emotion is this. Diedrich has a slightly different angle here, and he says our emotions are chosen for us by the beliefs we have about ourselves. Now, it's okay. I don't think there's any major contradiction here because the beliefs we have about ourselves are just simply well-practiced thoughts. And so... Indirectly, it's the same process. If I pour a lot of mind energy into it, if I've bought into a pattern of thoughts about myself and I believe this is the truth about me, then whenever that thought pattern gets activated, it, in Diedrich's words, it chooses the emotions I experience. And it's very much in line with what Dr. Michael Rice talks about when he talks about the law of resonance because if that energy is in me, and something triggers me to interpret a life situation that's of a similar frequency, it's, it adds energy to that core thought pattern or core belief, and then I start to feel the emotions that go along with that belief. So, again, that paragraph reads, where do the feelings come from? Our feelings are chosen by our beliefs and the beliefs that we have about ourselves. If I have a belief that I'm not supported, I will look for and find evidence to show me that I'm not being supported. When I see that evidence in any form, I will feel rage. And it is that feeling of rage that I become addicted to in a vicious cycle. Diedrich writes, I became addicted to the feeling of rage associated with the idea that I am not supported. We can begin to understand the roots of our addiction to feelings and therefore to substances when we can answer the question, who do you think you are? So thus, the key to unraveling our deep sadness our deep depression, our substance abuse, our workaholism, our eating disorders, and other debilitating patterns that we call symptoms, the key to unraveling that is to tackle the underlying belief structure that makes up who we think we are. This has been the key to the remarkable success that the Choose Again method has enjoyed. Working with clients with all kinds of presenting issues, whether it be depression, stressed relationships, chronic anxiety, or substance abuse, the six-step process is a method by which this dismantling of core beliefs can be achieved. Before I committed to my own healing work, my alcohol intake was substantial. I was drunk almost every night for about 30 years. 
This abuse was purely a choice that I made based on my deep sense of self-hatred. This self-hatred was the outcome It was the outcome of a set of core beliefs. These core beliefs included, I am unlovable, I am guilty, I am worthless, and I am deserving of punishment. These beliefs demanded evidence, which my alcoholic behavior amply supplied. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous for help, and I learned their perspective on the issue, which is that alcoholism is an illness, and I, as an alcoholic, am powerless over it. And I believed this for a while. However, after having worked on myself using the Choose Again methodology, I came to understand that it's the ego which believes it's powerless over alcohol and many other things. Now, I would never say that I am powerless over anything. This is because I've learned that who I am in truth, capital T truth, beyond the ego, is an infinitely powerful being and not powerless. AA has helped many people, and I admire its record. It's a magnificent organization that saved literally millions of lives, and it continues to do so. And, yes, in my opinion, it could go further. Many Alcoholics Anonymous veterans who have been in our center stated with surprise, wow, this is the missing link. A key question needs to be asked, why was I drinking in the first place? Where did that come from? If you're drinking too much, you need to ask yourself, what's the purpose of my drinking? What is its function? What do I get to be right about when I drink? It's the urgency and necessity of drinking that needs to be addressed. The urgency and necessity is informed by an underlying belief that makes me want to destroy the self that I think I am, that I hate. In my case, not only was I drinking too much, I was also doing drugs, I was philandering, I was sabotaging my business on all levels. I was trying to self-destruct. I did not succeed. Sadly, some people do succeed, or they remain in a self-destructive treadmill. So why did I drink so much? Well, for two reasons. One, I was on a misguided search for a higher self through a transcendent experience. And in my self-styled fanaticism, I thought booze was going to take me there. I thought it would transport me to that spiritual realm I was seeking. Is it just a coincidence that alcohol is called spirits? The second reason I drank was to destroy the self that I hated so much. This is a lowercase s self. This is a pattern of thoughts about myself, not my true nature. The question he raises is, why didn't that work? It didn't work because it can't be destroyed. I was trying to destroy a belief. I was trying to destroy the belief in my worthlessness. But you can't actually destroy a belief. What you can do is withdraw your attachment to it or your identification with it. 
You can take away the faith you have in your own belief, and then it will wither and lose its power over you. When it withers away, with it will go your self and behaviors. So he writes in the next section titled, Fixing Symptoms Doesn't Work. And he quotes A Course in Miracles at the beginning of this section where it says, quote, Correction belongs only at the level where change is possible. Change does not mean anything at the symptom level. This is where it cannot work, close quotes. Diedrich writes, if you're a drinker and you manage to give up alcohol, nothing really happens except that you're not drinking anymore. You have to go to the source, the reason behind the drinking, to truly become free of addiction. Otherwise, you'll either go back to drinking or you'll find other ways to express your self-loathing. Back in 1986, when I attended AA meetings for a few months, I was struck by how many people were smoking. The fact that virtually every treatment facility in North America allows smoking is truly puzzling. What's the difference between smoking and drinking? What is the message I give myself when I light up a cigarette? When you get down to it, they're both expressions of self-hatred. The Choose Again six-step process tackles underlying beliefs, not symptoms. Addressing the cause of drinking rather than trying to manage the drinking itself is the difference between Choose Again and Alcoholics Anonymous. By transforming the roots of the self-loathing, which is the, the dynamic which prompts drinking to excess, the motivation for excessive drinking is eliminated and will not be transferred to other destructive behaviors. Having said that, of course, the first thing many people need to do is stop drinking or snorting cocaine or whatever the behavior that their self-hatred compels them to pursue. But that is as far as the behavior modification will go in our work. Behaviors are permanently erased only with the removal of their cause. Now, if you listen to Dr. Michael Rice and his theory about this, it is so similar that I'm completely comfortable presenting this approach because Dr. Michael Rice will talk about how addiction is the compulsive use of any substance, food, person, behavior, or pattern to either distract myself from or numb myself out to an active pain and or to keep me from seeing and following my highest guidance. Now, you might rightly ask, why would I want to avoid seeing or avoid following my highest guidance? And the simple answer is because my highest guidance might be telling me to do something that takes away my numbing agent, and I don't want to feel the pain underneath it. So Michael Rice says, when you remove the pain underneath, at the root, at the cause level, Michael has several 
different lectures where he talks about working at the cause level, which I believe is exactly the same as what Diedrich Wolzak is talking about here. And when you help people resolve the cause level of their pain, they no longer have a need to numb out from it. And, as Diedrich just said in the last sentence here, behaviors are permanently erased only when you remove their cause. And so, Dr. Michael Rice has said, he works with people and they still actively use. As long as they're not using, they're not under the influence of their substance during his sessions when he's working with them or they're doing a breath session or they're working on the reality management worksheet or they're doing their targeted journaling. If they're clear-headed enough to do the deep exploration of what is in their psyche that's creating their belief that they need to be punished or their pain, etc., then he works with them. And what he finds is the more people do the reality management worksheet or the breath work or the targeted journaling that he, Michael calls uh, the mind shifter tool, and the more they see and therefore see through and get rid of the need for the pain-producing thought pattern or in Diedrich Wolzak's experience, the belief, then they stop using There's no need to run away from pain, and so there's no need to pick up a bottle of pills or a glass of alcohol or whatever addictive behavior people were using to distract from, numb out from their pain. So the next question in Diedrich's work is, how do we discover who we think we are? And he writes that the Choose Again six-step process is a powerful tool for uncovering the beliefs that make up who we think we are. It uses the feelings experienced in an upset to rediscover a memory of a childhood incident in which a core belief was generated. Applying this radical process to every upset results in a remarkable and a remarkably quick transformation and healing. There are at least three other gateways to accessing and identifying our major beliefs, which I will briefly discuss here. They are our judgments of others, our attachment to things, and our special relationships. When it comes to judgments, he says this, when we judge other people critically, we are really seeing the parts of our egos that we don't like. If there's any emotion behind a judgment, we can be sure that it actually applies in some way to ourselves. If we are just observing without an emotional involvement, then what we see is less likely to be about us. Now here, my mind is telling me he's talking about what we we talk about as the difference between a judgment and a discernment. And the quick review is, if I look around my room and I see that chair is a brown leather chair and that couch is a a greenish blue and that wall is an eggshell color and that trim on that window is a medium dark brown, I've simply discerned the difference in these colors. I haven't said 
the dark brown is ugly, the blue is good, the eggshell is the best color in the room. I haven't judged one or the other as right or wrong, good or bad. So I'm in discernment. I'm just in direct observation. I'm in allowance. I'm in surrender. And I'm wide awake in a moment. But as soon as I judge, one is better, one is worse, and I feel the tension in my system when I do, now I have an emotional involvement in Diedrich Wolzak's terms. And when I have an emotional involvement, it's pretty good odds that what I think I'm seeing in the other person is something I'm still judging myself negatively for having been or done, either currently or in the past. And if I, if I see that with calm equanimity, it's much better odds that it's not about me. He writes, if I see someone taking the last piece of cake on a dessert tray and I have anger come up in me, I'm probably looking at an old belief in scarcity that might be summarized by the, the statement, quote, there will never be enough for me, close quotes. If I look at a birch tree and comment on its grace, it does not mean I have a deeply buried belief that I'm a birch tree. But when I have a negative emotion arise, whenever I'm doing observation, or in this case, we're going to call it judgment if there's a negative emotion, all right? It's probably because I'm still judging myself negatively for having done the same or similar thing. Or, as Diedrich is pointing out, it's resonating an old, deeply held negative belief about me. He goes on and writes, We often resent hearing that the things we hate about others are really attributes that we have ourselves. And we do not want to look at that. Whenever you feel strongly judgmental, the first thing to ask is, quote, would I accuse myself of that? And often you'll have buried that particular fault, trying to portray yourself as totally the opposite, because acknowledging that self-judgment is too painful. So the next time you want to judge someone, take a long, hard look in the mirror and see how that judgment plays out in your own life. Now, in the bottom line observations, one of the observations says, I will never be upset about anything anybody else ever says or does or doesn't do that I think they should unless I'm still judging myself negatively for doing the same or similar thing. And it doesn't matter whether I'm doing it right now or I did it you know, years or decades ago. I'm if I'm judging somebody negatively, it will be because I'm holding a negative judgment against myself for doing something similar, whether it's a recent or distant past. Diedrich writes, one of our staff members, Charles, had a very powerful fear of being gay. When I asked him, what is your judgment on people who are gay, he would not express any judgment. Gay people are fine. Nothing wrong with them. But that clearly was not the case at a much deeper level. So we went back to the feelings that came up for him when he considered the possibility that he too might be gay. 
He allowed the feelings to grow and eventually recognized them as disgusting, monstrous, horrible, and something terribly wrong. None of these had anything to do with sexual preference. Everything had to do with how Charles saw himself. All these judgments were traced back to a memory of him witnessing his parents arguing and him drawing the conclusion that it was somehow his fault. Much later, he projected these feelings onto gay people. By processing both of these core beliefs, Charles gained a tremendous sense of peace around this issue. Whether he actually was gay or not no longer mattered, and it never did. So that's a summary of attachments. This is one way that we can discover what our major beliefs are. There are three of them. Judgments, attachments to things, and special relationships. The second one is attachments. Here's what Diedrich writes about attachments. He quotes um, Sri H.W.L. Punja, who writes, quote, A mind attached to anything becomes a sick, weak mind. A weak mind will keep going to the garbage of attachment, and this causes the nervous system to get squeezed and weakened, so it cannot handle this very energetic decision for freedom. A strong mind is needed to make the strong decision and handle the power that will come with it. To heal disease, you must first decide that you want to be free of pain and suffering. Without wanting this, nothing else will work. To forgive and forget is the best medicine for curing all pain. Let the thought that causes pain come into the present and discharge it into emptiness. Do this now. Sri H.W.L. Punja. Diedrich writes, What do you think you couldn't live without? If you're attached to a particular consumer good, like shoes, you may be convinced that you need a new pair of high heels every week in order to feel attractive. This desire is driven by the larger, overarching belief that you need something outside of yourself to be secure and feel happy. Underneath such a belief is likely a deeper one, such as, I'm not lovable just the way I am. There's something lacking within me. Now, this idea of attachments is so widespread in the deep spiritual teachings that of Course in Miracles talks about it and Way of Mastery talks about it and gives us exercises for uncovering what do we really think we need? What do we think we can't be happy without? What would it be like if we went home and got rid of that? What would that stir up for us internally? fears, pains, etc. So the third thing is special relationships. And Diedrich writes, a special relationship is one in which each holds the other responsible for how they feel. This would be what Dr. Michael Rice calls a codependent relationship. Anytime I think anyone or anything outside of me is responsible for my emotional state, I've just created a codependent relationship. 
Diedrich writes, in a special relationship, I have given my partner the task of making me happy. The arrangement stems from a belief in lack and that what I need is to be supplied by my partner. Finally, a special relationship is a prolonged bargaining session which is doomed to fail. Sooner or later, my partner does not keep his or her end of the bargain. Yet, ultimately, we attract partners who share our beliefs in order that we might heal them together. I used to attract people who had a noticeable addiction to the feeling we call anger. They came into my life in order to offer me a steady stream of replays of my father's anger. What was the purpose of attracting anger? Well, ultimately, it was to heal my belief that I deserved to be punished and to heal my urge and this huge fear that when someone is angry, it means I will be abandoned. My partner will always push buttons, my buttons, and trigger my beliefs better than anybody else. So if I pay attention to those triggers, we'll both discover the beliefs that we need to heal. Relationships are the most powerful healing laboratories available to us all. And this is pretty close to a verbatim statement that Dr. Michael Rice would give when he's in his giving his workshop um, healing through relationships. And he says, I used to have the title be Healing Your Relationships, and then one day he woke up with the realization, or he lived into the realization, that relationships aren't broken. And this law of resonance has us moving toward people who have similar issues so that we can get awakened to what we most need to see and release or heal within ourselves. The next section, Diedrich titles, We Think We Are Our Labels. And he writes, In the same way that we hold ideas about who we think we are, whether I'm introverted, I'm bad at math, I'm a poor driver, I'm phobic about heights, in that same way, many of us are also labeled with diagnoses, such as attention deficit disorder, with hyperactivity, anorexic, bipolar, or depressed, just to name a few. If we allow ourselves to be labeled and we accept the authority of an outsider to give weight to the label, then inevitably we become the label. I have certainly seen people who were labeled in some way act more and more like the label over time. There is a seductive quality to a label or a diagnosis. He writes, quote, I'm off the hook. Now I know why I've always behaved the way I do, close quotes. The label can absolve one from taking ownership or responsibility for a problem or a behavioral tendency. A young woman who was 22, deeply depressed and on suicide watch, came to see me for a session. Her psychiatrist had given her a life sentence. He said, quote, you will never be happy, close quotes. If she had believed that, where do you think she'd be now? Someone had told her about our work, and she came to see me in Vancouver. 
she instantly connected with the suggestion that depression and suicidal ideation were part of a deeper issue and were chosen by her to support some core beliefs about herself. Two days later, she was at our center in Costa Rica, and three days later, she had commuted her own life sentence. She learned that she could choose again. She had a vote after all. Very quickly, she decided to shed the labels and to start living. Now, it doesn't always go that quickly. Progress depends upon how steady someone is and committed to choosing again. It depends on how strongly the person wants to be right about something that happened in the past and whether one is willing to let everyone in the past off the hook. Dr. Michael Rice would say, it depends on how willing I am to cancel my goals, cancel my need to be right. Here's the same thing. Diedrich writes, it depends on how strongly the person wants to be right about something in the past. I hope you can see the similarity. Every reality management worksheet has in it, I cancel my need to be right. The forgiveness pattern that I put together from listening to Dr. Michael Rice and a whole series of other people who would do worksheets and and do hundreds and thousands of worksheets and from the intensive centers and from workshops that I attended with Dr. Rice, I put together this forgiveness pattern. And it says, just repeat over and over again, I cancel my need to be right. I cancel my need for anyone or anything to change. It's the same core need that Diedrich talks about in the choose again process that's a primary determinant about how quickly one can heal. Diedrich writes, whether you've been labeled as bipolar, depressed, or suicidal, or anything else, it's crucial to remember that those labels only point at symptoms. Those symptoms are informing you that there is something wrong with your belief system. There's something wrong with who you think you are. Your mistaken identity is manifesting as depression or as manic behavior or as being habitually conflicted, and it is not who you are. Understanding who we think we are is the prerequisite to transforming our everyday experiences. Getting in touch with who we really are puts us on the path to healing. The subject of the next chapter is the path to healing through discovering who you are in truth. So at the end of this chapter, he has a summary, five points. Point number one. We make up core beliefs about ourselves as young children. Point number two, our beliefs demand evidence, which we will find in our everyday activities. Point number three, beliefs run like default programs, determining our behavior and creating barriers to happiness. We think we are our beliefs, We think we are our stories and our labels, but none of these are who we really are. Point number four. Awareness and correction of these beliefs are essential for becoming happier and healthier 
it does so by decreasing their power over us. Point number five. We can find out what our beliefs are by examining our upsets and our feelings and the choose again six-step process by examining our judgments, our attachments, our relationships, and our labels. So that's the first two chapters and the summary of that second chapter. And that's all I'm going to read from there today. So we have about 15 minutes to have a conversation. How is this landing for you? How is it lining up when I'm trying to share what I believe are the parallels? 563-999-3581. Call that number, press 1 on your phone, and let us know. How is this working out for you? Area code 610, you're in the air. Hi, Dr. Kim. Hello. You mentioned right at the beginning that you thought something about the Diedrich work was a bit harsh, and I think it was because of his past and the descriptions of his past. But I was wondering if there's anything else in there because there is something that's striking about his approach that might seem harsh, but after we've done so much of the work, those of us who've been on the radio show for a while may may find it kind of refreshing too, and that is that he has no patience for the story beyond its usefulness as an explanation of someone's beginnings and maybe the reasons why they've had trauma. But he doesn't want people to keep going there. And it's easy to see why, because we can use it to maintain a position of being a victim. Oh, use it to blame so I understand that. Did you think that was harsh, or was it his beginnings that you were? I was um, just referring to the harshness of his life in the concentration camp and the abuse he received from his father, and yeah. you know his his sexual shame, etc. That's just you know it's for me it's hard to listen to those kinds of things and i i do it on a regular basis i work with people who have those kinds of issues and yet yeah. it's not the kind of thing that we normally do in the show and i just want to yeah. i wanted to highlight to point out that that's not where we're staying we're not going to stay uh blaming anyone or anything we're going to be trying to present tools that help us dismantle whatever those processes are that keep us mm. feeling the negative feelings. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of something Michael Rice said. He said he goes to movies or he may read things that he might not otherwise have read, but he does them as a way of challenging himself to do more work now that he's pretty much in many ways, 
clear. He kind of induces. No, 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 no. Okay. Please, please correct this in your thought and speech about this. It's not that now he's pretty much clear. He's no more clear than you are. That's just a complete put the person on a pedestal statement, right? Uh oh. <laughs> yep. Okay. Right. That's all that is. You're trying to put him on a pedestal. When you hear them talk about this, and you're not stepping into putting somebody on a pedestal, you'll hear them talk about how Michael used to avoid certain movies and experiences because he would get very upset and triggered. Mm-hmm. And so as long as that was the case and he didn't want to be upset and triggered, he stayed away from movies. And mm. I encourage people, if you get upset and triggered going to movies, stay away. Mm-hmm. At one point in his work, he'd been teaching the forgiveness worksheet and doing the breath work and these other things, and he got the guidance. Michael, you either believe this stuff or you don't. And if you believe what you're teaching, you understand that the lights and the sounds that are projected in the movie theater cannot be causing your upset. Mm. Well, that means... It's all just smoke and mirrors. So Mm -hmm. go to this movie, take a stack of your worksheets, right? If it were me and I had exposure to the EFT tapping, I'd sit in the theater and I would be breathing and tapping along while I watched this, Mm -hmm. visualizing my energy moving and, and just reminding myself that, you know, whatever's getting stirred up is not being caused by anything outside of me. And it worked for him. And then after a while, he decided, hey, you know what? When I have a little bit of extra energy, I think I'm going to go use going to different movies as a way to, to get resonating the stuff that I need to clear up because it's easier than waiting for it to blow up in my life. Mm. it's not that he's so clear and he never has upsets and and I've heard it a number of times from Jeannie believe me Michael gets triggered right we all get triggered Michael's not Mm. going to see things at a movie theater because regular life doesn't trigger him that's just a that's a complete (laughs) fallacy spend some time with the man right Spend Mm -hmm. some time with the man and you will understand. He gets triggered just like anybody else. And he has decided, you know what? Rather than wait until one of my primary relationships um, has somebody that steps on one of my bags of garbage and then it's really up in my face, I'm going to... When I have extra time and I am in so inclined, I'm going to go watch movies that I think might raise issues for me that I can do worksheets on and clear out some of the baggage just because it's easier when I know it's a movie theater, it's Mm -hmm. lights and sounds 
that's so much easier to do worksheets on than when I'm here with my loved one in the house and an issue comes up and I'm feeling like it's survival level stuff. So it's not about he doesn't get triggered. It's that he's discovered that's a lighter, easier way to do the worksheets, to have stuff get stirred up, because he can remind himself, oh, look, it's just lights on the screen. And if I get too triggered, I can just walk out of the theater and do some worksheets on it later, which is not so easy when it's something that comes up in a business interaction or a primary relationship interaction. Does that help clear that up for you? Yeah, it does. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I'm not ready to do what he does, but he does it. Good. That's, but I that's know fine. He, yeah. I do know he gets triggered because he posts some pretty lively stuff on Facebook. It makes me think he's triggered about this or that, and why not? Anybody would be, but that's a whole other discussion. I just don't feel as if I want to... Step into that when enough things in my regular life trigger me already. Anyway, so that's yeah. that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what the core of this work encourages you and me and everybody else to do. Tap into your own guidance. <laughs> Michael Rice does mm. that because that was his guidance. Now, mm. if Michael Rice says that in a workshop or on the Internet show and it doesn't resonate with your guidance, don't do it. Mm-hmm. The core of this work yeah. is to help you figure out how to tap into your own guidance, mm. not follow anybody else. Good. Well, I have a question that's not really related, but last week... And I spoke to Michael, I think, yesterday or the day before, a little about this. You said, why don't you journal write about what I would want to say to our Michael? And I did, and it was pretty impressive. (laughs) And it was so bad that after I had written a couple of pages, I got rid of it. I didn't even want it existing on the planet in any concrete form. But I certainly kept my awareness of my capacity to go way, way deep into judgment. Uh, And this was happening while I was also having a reaction to a couple of flu shots. And Michael had said, hey, you're in a healing crisis. And that was like a little switch that flipped open. And I thought, "I I am detoxing not only physically but emotionally and I waited a day, and all of the stuff that I had written in that journal simply weren't true, didn't apply. I couldn't imagine, well, in any case, I wouldn't have said those things, but even to feel those things, they were gone. Now, what is that, that I don't even recognize this as myself, nor my power person? I don't think she would ever have even thought some of the things I was thinking. I just don't understand where to place this amount of garbage. You don't need to understand it. You don't need to understand it. If it's lost Mm -hmm. its power over you, move on. 
you read it now and you say, I, I, can't, it... I, I can't even imagine thinking that. This is just like what Michael Ray says on a regular basis. He'll have his... He'll have a worksheet, and, and it'll be a powerful worksheet. And then he'll go back to the original thing that he thought he was upset about, and he'll say, you know what, I can't even remember why I felt so upset about it. I'm looking at the uh-huh, same yeah. data point. I'm, I'm looking at the same mm-hmm. situation. I'm thinking, how did I ever generate upset over that? It's the same process. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. why we encourage people to use the tools to stir up the stuff from the subconscious and the unconscious, because when we see it directly, with our awareness of our current age and our current life sitting, it's not being seen through the filter of my childhood traumatic belief. It loses its power over me. It's the same thing that happens in the Choose Again worksheet. There's no other magic in the Choose Again worksheet other than seeing, oh, wait a minute, when I was this age and this happened, I generated this belief about me mm. and every time that belief about me gets resonated into activity, I feel the same emotion that I felt when I first downloaded that belief. Mm. And when I get and when I get clear about that, it loses its power over me. That's the that's the mechanism. I think what it, creeps me out is that I might, it loses its power, but will it come back? <clears throat> if it does, it just means it's getting resonated by another level of trauma, and you do the worksheets again, and it mm. disappears. Mm. Good. It's just, <clears throat> it's just a process. It's not... The flipping of a switch. It's not reaching permanent enlightenment. It's just the process. And like mm. Diedrich said in the very early going of this book, he said, look, think about this the way you would think about carving a path in a rainforest. Right. Right? You chop and you sweat and you work and you keep your nose to the grindstone, you stay focused, and you get a path. Mm. If you stop there and you come back a week or a month later... I've got a phone call I have got to take, and I hate to interrupt this, but it's something to do with housing for Michael, so I'm going to take this. All right. Blessings. Thank you for the call. Thanks. I believe this is Anne. Are you on? Yeah. Yeah, I am. a minute or so. uh, I know. I I was just going to bring up an example, and I can do it another day with Susan, about a time that Michael had shown a movie at one of the intensives. And, and, you know, I had an issue with stuff going going on in there and how he – I was mad at him at the time that he said what he said, but then I had to do wake-up sheets and and do exactly what you said on it. And so – then later I had a relationship with, you know, a person that became a friend, you know, he had a mouth like a sailor and I learned to um, unconditionally love him anyway, because I wasn't triggered by, you know, the bad language. Cause now I saw it differently. But anyway, that was a great example that, you know, Michael had used one of those movies. <laughs> Intensive to do 
the trigger stuff, and it did. There was another guy and I that were triggered and went to him. And Anyway, that was a great example of that. That's all. But the rest all right. of it well, is um, about the addiction stuff. So good job. All right. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Thanks for listening. I'll mute you so you can listen in. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I'll turn on the microphone for and hopefully welcome Jeannie Rice. Are there? Are you there, Jeannie? I'm here. Uh, welcome. Thank you. We're uh, having trouble getting you. in. Um, no, I'm unmuted. Okay, I just saw that you had shown up on the board and left, and we've had several people who were on the board and left. And Jeannie's gone again. So I don't know if we're having technical difficulties or not, but I will hang around. Are you there, Jeannie Rice? I, yeah, I had to dial in again. Can you hear me this time? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay, awesome. Yep. All right. Blessings. Have a wonderful show. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. And today is Wednesday, September 27, 2023. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And, <coughs> excuse me, I am uh, trying to print something off for Michael and... So I'm kind of, am I on? Well, I'm not sure. Okay, let me try this again. Hmm. Are you with us, Jeannie? I can hear you. I uh, am. Can can you hear me? Okay, the switchboard yeah. is doing yeah. something really weird. It's not showing anybody. Oh, okay. It's showing zero time. So I'm going to restart my switchboard, and uh, hopefully. Okay. So you go ahead and talk, and I will. I can uh, hear you loud and clear. Thing. Okay, I got the switchboard back. So okay. I will. Um, you'll talk in just a minute. It wants me to. Um, Change the ink printer. So you talk for a minute, and I'll work on this, and I'll be right back. Cool. So welcome, everybody, to Mind Shifters Radio. Let's see. Today is, you know what? I don't even know what day it is. I think it's Wednesday. And being Wednesday, that would mean it would have to be, I think, the 27th of September. Would that be correct, everybody? I think so. Time is flying. It's just amazing. So we've got Wednesday, the 27th of September, getting ready to head into October. We were out working in the garden today, and our apple tree has new flowers on it. It's like, what? It's the end of September, but we've got new greenery and flowers on our apple tree, so maybe the tree knows something we don't. Maybe we're really going to get this awesome Indian summer and get another whole crop of apples, crab apples. That would be awesome. Makes the best jelly. In any event, delighted that you're here and that we get to uh, move forward in this conversation on the next level. 
And of course, the conversation is about everything to do with first century Aramaic forgiveness and the recollection and reestablishment of who we are as human beings. And with that comes the recognition that anything that comes out of your mind that's based on hostility or fear has to be false, as Dr. Tim says. The only thing that's true is love. So how do we get to do all this other stuff? Where does it all come from? Well, it comes from what we call the non-being mind. What is the non-being mind? Well, that's carbon-based memory. And if you uh, were to take your... Uh, what you call your body into a laboratory and said, hey, tell me what chemicals are here. What, what's the atomic structure? What's the chemical structure of this device? I want you to go to those two realms and tell me all about it. They come out saying, well, the base element is carbon. You say, well, what's a, what's a carbon atom look like? And they say, well, there's this energy pattern that has what we call six electrons, six protons, six neutrons. Its number is 666. And it stores everything in your mind from the past. And when it's resonated into activity, it builds pictures based on the past, puts them in front of your eyeballs. It, like, it kind of paints them on the inside of your eyeballs. Like when you're looking on the inside of your eyeballs, you think that what you're looking at is actually out there, but it's not. It's on the inside of your eyeballs. It comes from carbon-based memory. It replaces your ability to experience directly what this world is. active present love, the truth about each and every one of us. Now, sadly, if you look at the way it's working today, the whole game is a long, a long way from that. Why are we so far from that? Well, unfortunately, hostility and fear entered into the picture, energetic patterns that didn't belong. And we made up a world, literally the Course in Miracles says, perception is a world you made up to take the place of the one the Creator gave you in creation. And when you recognize that, then the project becomes one of collapsing the world of perception. Now, it's not even about collapsing the world of false perception. It's about collapsing the world of perception because perception is a whole fabrication. It doesn't have to do with the truth of who you are. You can enter into it. You can express. If you wake up to who you are, you can clean it up. You can forgive it. You can remove its content so that the what they call the mind that's there as an expression of carbon-based memory is no longer running the show. So when I experience elevated levels of stress, I've been tricked into believing these perceptual constructs in my mind, believing they're true. And they're just projections of dissociated content from carbon-based memory from the past. The objective here is to recognize and forgive the thought disorders that are stored in carbon-based memory that produce all of this garbage. So the application of forgiveness is the key. 
And to recognize that when I set a goal, I establish a stress in my mind. And that if that stress resonates some form of hostility or fear, I'm in difficulty. I'm in trouble. Especially if someone violates that goal. Because at that moment, it seems like the goal just got further away. And when the goal gets further away, it's, it's the, the so-called distance to the goal that determines the level of stress. So when someone violates a goal that I hold for them, my stress goes up. If that calls into play hidden, painful, emotionally dissociated parts of my carbon-based memory system, and that includes your genes, We'll use that content to make the pictures, paint them right there on the inside of our eyeballs and believe they're outside of us. And when we get to the truth of who we are, then we get to show up in an errant mind as the presence of love. As long as we're in a lie, as long as we're in, you know, yesterday we talked about the pseudo-solutions. And actually in working on the new power person worksheet, I've realized that there are actually two different types, or we're going to identify two different types of uh, pseudo-solutions. One of them are the specific ones, the things like, if I could just figure this out. And then there are a whole general list of pseudo-solutions. Everything we do that's based in hostility or fear is a general pseudo-solution compared to the specifics. We went over those a couple of weeks ago on the show. So uh, pseudo-solutions can be the general ones. can be things like, I want to be cherished. I want to be protected. I want to be safe. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want to win. I want to be honored. I want to stay sane, I want to have sex, I want to survive, I want to feel fulfilled, I want to have power, I want to be respected, I want to belong, I want acceptance. On and on and on go the list. All of those things become pseudo-solutions. And when we load those things as goals within our minds, then the corresponding material in carbon-based memory gets resonated into activity. Those things that are resonated into activity are usually thought disorders related to pain. And so the next solution becomes, well, give me an anesthetic. I can't stand this pain. i got to get out of here. I'm going to hang up this phone on you. I can't stand this pain. Give me a fifth of scotch. Let me rage. Let me judge you. Let me make you the problem in my life. Remember, denial, the act of thinking or speaking as though something outside of me is the cause of something that's moving inside of me, is the beginning point of every dis deeply destructive cycle of false perception. Why are these cycles of self-false perception so destructive? Because they, when I believe them, I lose awareness of myself as a human being, as love. So denial results in dissociation, the hiding by my mind 
of the truth in order that I can believe my hallucinated lie. Now, my hallucinated, hallucinated lie becomes the solution. And, of course, it's all everybody else's fault. I only did this because of you. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Time to give up the lies. When that picture painted on the inside of my eyeballs is externalized, when I pretend that it's actually out there rather than in my brain appearing on the inside of my eyeballs is something I see out there, When I pretend that what I see inside is actually outside of me, that misdirection where my mind generates these constructs hides the truth. Now, it seems to protect me from my self-induced pain, but the pain remains. That mechanism of projection even is somewhat like a, an anesthetic. It doesn't cover the pain altogether, but it directs my, my mind to put my pain the energetic patterns with which I cause my pain into my brain's image of others. And they show up in my mind with my problem attached. And I've avoided facing my internally generated pain truly and directly. And when I do that, I disempower myself in that when I, when I put it into my brain's image of someone else, I have no power over it anymore. It's all mine. I generated it. I generated the whole image, the whole projection. But now when I believe that it belongs to you and that you're out there, of course I have no power over it. One of the biggest challenges is facing that internally generated pain directly, and that's what happens when you enter into forgiveness. That's why most people want to avoid the forgiveness process. And of course the cost of this pretense game is everything. The denial cycle and anesthetics can appear to be solutions. We call them pseudo-solutions. And that they seem to solve our problem because now it's outside of me, but the pain is still felt inside of me. If I'm in pain, I have an error in my thinking. And there's healing work to do. My denial and my anesthetics compromise my intelligence. We become numb to the warning signals that would inform us. And that just complicates the challenges of healing immeasurably. And of course it intensifies the need for self-correction. This, I would offer, is the source of all physical disease. The mind energy behind our pseudo-solutions constructs aberrant physiological disturbances that we call chemistry. Remember, mind energy becomes flesh. Go to the opening words in the book of John. It doesn't say, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. It says, in the beginning was the mind energy, and the mind energy became flesh. Go to Bruce Lipton's lab. Just search Bruce Lipton on YouTube, watch some of his videos, and he'll tell you that what they've discovered is when you think a thought, it produces a neuropeptide, chemical, or pardon me, a, a molecule. And that molecule, when it lands on a cell, shows up in the cell as chemistry, the energy pattern we call chemistry. 
says these disturbances I would offer are the cause of all disease. And at the same time as it creates diseases, it produces the mental constructs and perceptions that block truth. People hallucinate a lie, they call their lie truth. There's a very limited space in the mind for anything to show up. So when one fills that space with a lie and calls that lie truth, they're now living in blockage of truth. And that's where external tempting because with the internal chemistry of the current pseudo-solution is not working to effectively shut down whatever I'm trying to feel, avoid feeling. Hey, an anesthetic, that'll do. Give me a fifth of scotch. And we can hide our stress under the pretense that we're managing it when we use some form of addictive person, place, thing, event, circumstance, substance, or activity. Ultimately, denial and addictions do nothing but create and reinforce living an unconscious life. We do a workshop called On Creating Consciously. The whole idea of that workshop is that we engage in frequencies out of conscious awareness rather than just what's resonated in the mind. Circumstance comes along, resonates content in the mind, the mind generates a picture, and we believe the picture's outside of us. And, you know, has anybody listening ever had anybody accuse you of something? of doing something or saying something you absolutely never said or never did? Anybody ever been accused of that? You know, in live workshops, I always get a laugh and lots of hands go up on that one. Notice every time you've ever been accused of doing something you didn't do, saying something you didn't say, the person, the person doing the accusation is in one state. And that is a state of some form of hostility or fear. Now, if you can see that clearly in your life, yeah, when I think of when he did, she did, they did, that happened years when, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, that's true, Michael. They were always in some form of hostility or fear. What does that mean? It means that a mind in hostility or fear is a liar. But the last thing most people suspect is that when their mind is in hostility or fear, their mind is the liar. No, 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 no. When I'm in hostility or fear, my mind tells me the truth. It's their minds that are hallucinating when in hostility or fear. No. Everything your mind has ever told you out of hostility or fear is a lie. Now, I, I can remember one workshop where you had somebody that a fairly, fairly astute gentleman. And it was just shocking to him when he had to admit to himself. And I mean, I can remember his, his voice tone saying it in the class. I was like, my whole life has been a lie. Sadly, if you live in the non-being mind and the pseudo-solutions of non-being mind, yeah, our whole lives becomes a lie. That can be a tough pill to swallow, but it's the best pill you'll ever swallow because it will open the space for you to recognize who you are as a human being. 
and when that active presence of love shows up in your physiology. Healing begins. It all starts to change. So we're here to support and create that kind of change. Right down to the subtlest of subtle thought disorders. And ultimately, the removal of all hostility and fear. So, Miss Jeannie, did we get everything straightened out with computers? Technical difficulties? Oh, cool. Well, do we have anybody out there with a hand up in the phone queue or anything happening in the chat room? No, it's all quiet on this end. I will say, um, you know, we just added yesterday, we added the page onto the website for um, uh, punishment avoidance. And today we've added the just the pseudo solution section of the non-being mind. So those are both on the website now. And I had gotten a email from Nene this morning. And, you know, she's doing the uh, meditations, the forgiveness meditations, in Spanish and English. Um, and those different dates, if you go to our website and click on Spanish, they're listed there. But she's also now added this coming Saturday that she's going to do a meditation in Spanish. And so the Zoom link for that is in today's notes as well. So if someone has a question, press 1. If you're listening on another station, we can't see you on the switchboard, dial 563-999-3581 and press 1. And that lets us know that you want to talk to us. And we'd love to hear from you. Does somebody press one? So what's on your mind if you're out there in listener land? How can we support you? How go your worksheets? What kind of subtle questions show up when you approach the forgiveness process? And did everything that I spoke about earlier make sense, or did it leave any room for doubt, questions, answers? Let's play. What's on your mind? Those who are taking part in the codependent uh, communication intensive, the self-study, the new our person worksheet, which is 14 pages long, is part of that intensive. It's not put on the website. Oh, we had a hand just go up, and I believe that it is Terry. 336, you're on the air. Good afternoon, folks. Hey, young man, welcome. How you doing today? Hey, we're rocking. How about you, Terry? What's happening? Good. Um, I've been listening to uh, a lecture uh, by a fellow, and, um, you know, as they say, there's nothing new under the sun, but it's good to look at things from different perspectives and angles. And this was from um, uh, Dr. Dispenza, I believe it's his name, a doctor in chiropractic medicine. Joe Dispenza, uh, I know him. 
Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got a really uh, interesting body of work. But what he was talking about today was, you know, was that, and you, I think, were the first one who shared this understanding with me, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is unbelievable, about the fact that when we observe something, that he talk, we're talking about the wave and the particle, that uh, the observance collapses into a particle, if I'm understanding that correctly, and that that's what creates this reality. And so, so the way I was understanding or looking at it a little bit differently, it's like, oh, okay, so what we're doing on a worksheet and it, is uh, we're looking at this particle formation that we've created with our mind, and he, he's really into the mind energy and being responsible for everything that we experience. So what we see as the uh, 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 conflict in the worksheet uh, is something that we have created through the particle collapse function, and now when we cancel that goal, we're resetting or pushing our mind back into the wave state and uh, setting that old uh, image free. And then as we reestablish the goal, now we've, we've uh, uh, again, collapsed the, collapsed the wave into a solid uh, particular form that becomes our experience. Um, so I wanted to throw that by you, Doc, and get your uh, input on that little uh, uh, action that I just had or those thoughts that were going through my mind. Right. Yeah, The um, I, I was fortunate about 30, I don't know, 34, 35 years ago. I used to, to a keynote at a conference called Global Science, and I know you've heard me speak about this, was a gentleman named Marcel Vogel, who was a 23-year senior scientist from IBM who presented at that same conference out in Colorado one year. And this particular Marcel, he's the fellow who um, created the Vogel cut crystals. As a scientist, he got into using crystals for energy amplifiers. He is the gentleman who created the magnetic coating for IBM that allows us to have hard drives on our computers. Without Marcel, we wouldn't have hard drives to store information. He, at 11 years of age, invented chemical light, where, you know, if you go to a football game and you buy a light stick and it's plastic and inside of it there are two tubes that you break the tubes inside and the chemicals mix and it lights up. That's all Marcel's work. So this particular conference, he brought a thing called a Delaware camera. And for me, what, you know, what my brain cells said is what he did was he explained with the Delaware camera what they call the observer effect. And basically what they're saying is in the world of quantum physics, everything is potential until measured. So it isn't until I turn my measuring device on that wave that it collapses into a particle. But my take is, from that interaction and listening to Marcel present that, and I don't know anywhere else this exists in the, in the scientific world, but it actually isn't the act of measuring. It's the act of having mind energy that matches, that sets up a field, and resonance creates the collapse. So what, what Marcel had was this thing called a Delaware camera, and it was a camera that, you know, where your standard camera, you click the aperture and it opens and light energy comes in until you're registered on the photographic plate. 
Well, the Delaware camera has a tuning mechanism, much like a radio mechanism, in front of the aperture. And so you have to tune it to a present frequency before it can receive that frequency. For instance, if you had the camera tuned properly and you took a picture of an acorn, what would show up on the photographic plate, and I've seen the pictures, what would show up on the photographic plate is an oak tree. Which the average person would say, now, wait a minute, that's crazy. You take a picture. How could you take a picture? Well, you know, I'm sitting in a room right now, and there are at least a thousand different television stations going on. I can't see them. I can't hear any of them. I've got to have the right tuning mechanism. If I have the right tuning mechanism, I can listen to any number of different things going on in my room right now that seem to be totally and completely absent, according to my senses. Well, in exactly the same way, when Marcel tuned the camera properly, obviously in an acorn, there's got to be information about an oak tree. Like nobody's ever planted an acorn and gotten corn or a Volkswagen or a, a golf club by planting an acorn in the ground. You plant an acorn in the ground and it always grows into an oak tree. Obviously, on some energetic level, the image, the picture, the instructions for whatever you want to call them, for the oak tree have to be in the acorn. The Delaware camera could decode that. So there, there's, there was another set of pictures that he showed us where they had a picture of a woman, uh, a fetus in utero at one month, two months, three months, and six months, if I remember correctly. This is 30 years ago, but there were four different pictures. And you could see the whole developing fetus. And all four pictures were taken the same day, at the same time. One, two, three, four. One month, two months, three months, six months. And you could see the, one month, the fetus at one month, at two months, at three months, and six months. And you say, well, how is that possible? Obviously, the instructions for what the fetus is going to become in six months are in the fetus at one month. You know, somebody doesn't come along every day and inject tomorrow's program for what it's going to become tomorrow or months from now. It's already there. And obviously, if you could read it, if you could decode it, you'd be able to see what it was. And that's what he was able to do. Well, the upshot was what Marcel ultimately brought the camera to show to this uh, global science conference was that he could take a picture of the high energy waves that leave the mind when we think a thought. So literally... Mind energy moving in me sets up a high energy wave. I live in a world of potential. There are maybe a million different possibilities. This is where the multiverse idea comes in. There are a million different possibilities. And if my mind energy is this particular frequency, and there is the potential for that in the quantum wave, the interaction and the resonance between the two causes the wave to collapse, producing the particle. And another word for that action is called creatorship. We're creators. If I have the mind energy for all kinds of rage and fear and hostility and grief and pain and drama and trauma, there's going to be all kinds of manifest hostility, fear, pain, grief, rage, and trauma around me. The act of forgiving removes that frequency from me so it's no longer there to interact with and resonate with the quantum potential to produce that result, and those things start to disappear from my life. And when I engage in mind energy based in active present love, then that's the energy that radiates from my mind 
interacting with the quantum potential and causing that to come into expression or what was called manifestation. It's interesting, in the Aramaic language, the word manifest, you know, you hear people talking about they're going to manifest new cars and money and all kinds of things, but in Aramaic, the word manifest isn't about getting stuff. The word manifest means obvious. Whatever is obvious to you. If it's obvious that, oh, of course, I always get ripped off, then guess what? Out of the quantum soup, out of the quantum potential, comes somebody who's capable of ripping us off. Whatever is obvious, whatever I have the strongest resonating mind energy for is the high energy wave that Marcel would be able to measure with his Delaware camera, and that would interact with the quantum potential and if it were present in the space, the two interacting through resonance, energies added to what is otherwise just a wave, and it literally collapses and becomes a particle. Now I'm living with the fruits of my thoughts. Creatorship. That's what led them in the scriptures to say, take care of the heart. The word heart being, in that case, a code word for the unconscious. What mind energy, what is obvious to you in your unconscious, for out of that are the issues in your life. And if it keeps happening, you know, there's this book, you, you maybe heard of it before, it's called, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? <laughs> Why? Because it's obvious to me, because that's the mind energy that I have, and I keep drawing to myself and drawing myself into the circumstances that hold that potential, and then when my energy, what's obvious to me, is added that's what actually collapses and becomes my experience. When I forgive, when I remove that energetic pattern, then the energy that resonates with this quantum potential is gone, and that quantum potential evaporates. It disappears. And because I now have a different mind energy, something different is obvious to me, like if somebody's in the space of, of course you could never trust the world because it always rips us off. If that's obvious to someone, then there'd always be a ripoff. If they were to shift that into, of course I'm made of the stuff called love of the creator and I can trust that to always take care of me, then that's what's going to, that being what's obvious is what's going to manifest for that, manifest for that person and the whole game's going to change. It's really powerful to recognize the the physical the physics mechanic behind creatorship and step into creating our lives consciously. So you bring up a, a, a great point, and I hope that all those pieces link together to make sense of where you're uh, where you're going with that. I'd like to say that you never disappoint as far as uh, uh, broadening and deepening a topic for me, and. I know that um, I'll be able to get this off of the archive. Will there be a way I would really like to, to – there's a lot of information there you just gave. And I would like to be able to print that transcript, this transcript out of this conversation and study that a little more. Is that possible? Uh, I'm sure it is, yeah. If you went to – you know, when the, the show is over, go and download it. And uh, and then run it through. You know, there are many programs out there that will read things for you. Run it through, and it'll read it. It'll transcribe it for you. Yes. Jamie, have you got any experience doing programs. that? 
Say it again. Have you, have you got one that you've used in that situation? Have you created transcripts from a from a, a broadcast like this before? I have not. However, I, Microsoft has a thing called Transcribe Your Recording, and I just clicked <clears throat> on that. And uh, I'll have to play with it. I've never done it before, but it's got um, Record in Word. Um, there, the transcript and the recording. So it's very possible. Great. And how many shows do you have on archive now? About 4,500 or so, I think. 4,500. Now, that's a lot of information. Hours. And I, the, way that, yeah, the way I learn the, the best is with a combination of the verbal, the visual, the tactile. Yep. When I get all those things going... It really takes it to a deeper level. So now I've got the yes. the, the live, live interaction with you, and then we've got this transcript for the Audible, and uh, I just see how I would really benefit from being able to get my hands on a trans, you know, a paper transcript of the of the dialogue. Yeah, I'm yeah. the same so way, Carrie. I, I, I know uh-huh. when it, whenever I've been in an intensive, I always take notes. And it's because, you know, the more senses that you use, you know, the sight, the sound, the, you know, feel, touch, everything, the more senses you use, I think the deeper that it sticks with you. I agree. Yes, definitely. So I'm going to check back with you after the show and see how that went, or maybe you could just shoot me a little link to that transcriber or something, or let me know how that goes, and I'll... I'll give it a roll too and see if I can. Uh, I try to use the dictate things where you where you speak to talk kind of stuff. I haven't had a lot of success with that, uh, um, where I talk into one of the programs and then it types it out. Um, so I don't know if that's what yeah. this Microsoft thing is or not, but it'll be interesting. I used to have I one think... of those voice trans- translator things too, and it couldn't understand me because I had a southern accent. Terry, I think there might be, you know, this might be a place to search. There might be podcast programs that you can listen on that will transcribe for you. I don't know whether iHeartRadio is one of the best uh, programs to listen to our radio show on because it will give you all of our archives all the way back to day one. Most podcast programs, most that you listen to things like this on, will only list about 300 of them. That's kind of the general limit. But iHeartRadio goes uh-huh. right back to 12 years ago, day one, and it's been five hours a day, or pardon me, an hour a day, five days a week for, how long has Tim been doing his show, Jeannie? Maybe three years? I'll have to look it up. It was um, about March. That. So for the first nine years, it's five days a week, 52 weeks a year for nine years. And then for about the last three, it's been two hours a day, five days a week for the last three years. So it comes up somewhat better than 4,000 hours. And 
I don't know of one, but it just seems like I've heard of it, and there's got to be a podcast program that will transcribe for you right from within the podcast program. It just take doing some searching to see if that's out there. It, make, it would make sense to me that it is. Yeah, and, and YouTube who, who now, since I've got, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, YouTube does it too. Yeah, it's got, and you can punch the little transcript, and one, when I watch it on YouTube, I can get a, a transcript running at the same time. That's really helpful for me, and uh, I don't know if they do that with every YouTube thing automatically or for some other feature that you have to, you know, request when you're putting stuff up, but um, I like I like that interaction with the YouTube. Then you get then you get all three right there at one time with one little right. swoop of the key right. keystroke of the finger. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. Well like you 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 sound like you are ready to go to the next quantum level, Terry. That's awesome. Yeah, well, with, with Dan, Dan inspired me, you know, with his stack of worksheets, and so uh, that was great. Uh, yeah, getting re-inspired, and then uh, uh, the littlest bit of effort and energy uh, does a couple of things. One, it brings up resistance down the road a little bit, and so you got to work a little bit harder when you first get some enthusiasm and you jump in there. And uh, for me, it's like, okay, yeah, this is great. And then I have to like, oh, oh, I got a little resistance coming up here and keep pushing with it. But what's, um, what's, what's really been good for me, too, is a reminder that my mind thinks it can figure all this stuff out, but it can't. And so the, the proof is in the pudding. Then when, when I do these worksheets and, I, and my mind is telling me, you know, oh, this is stupid or what are you doing this for? Those little thoughts come up, you know. And then I just, well, yeah, yeah, you can have your little moment in the sun there, but I'm going to continue with my worksheet. And then things change in my reality that there's this proof that's undeniable. Then that's, uh, that's the real um, motivator there for me. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, you can just uh, have all the little conversation you want about this. <laughs> yep, there you go. But what do you think about yeah? What do you what do you think about that? You know, or that? And so um, I'm right right in the middle of this uh, uh, new round of uh, uh, doing the you know committed to the worksheets and doing so many a day and uh, pushing through that. Just see how that see how that goes. And so far, it's going very well. Cool. Well, Terry, uh, just a couple of days ago, I'm pretty sure I sent to you because you're part of the uh, self-study codependence, the new power person worksheet. There yeah. is, I mean, I, I have it. spent... I haven't... Go ahead. I said, that's a heck of a document. I just clicked on it, and it's like, whoa, I haven't printed it off yet, but I'm, uh, I've got it in the queue. So let me hear about that. Well, I just, I've probably got uh, from the time... You know, originally when I taught codependence to interdependence back uh, 30 or so years ago, the original worksheet for the power person was one page. It was in yeah. the codependence intensive, the Zoom online codependence intensive, that we started to expand that. And 
I probably have about 200 hours in refining the wording on that document, on getting it just specific and on track. So spend some time with that, and uh, I think you'll find your mind will be boggled. Just hearing you say that, I got all giddy inside because if you said 200 hours, I guarantee it was not a minute less than 200 hours. So yeah, it was not a minute less, I promise you. <laughs> And as you engage those brain cells, uh, it'll be fun to hear what uh, what unmanifests from your life and what oh, manifests yeah, I like that. in your life. There's a lot going on right now that uh, has uh, that'll be interesting for sure, uh, and I'll share more of that with you as time is on. Awesome, sir. I appreciate you. Have Thank fun you. with the new worksheet. <laughs> All right. That piece, that piece with the Marcel camera, being able to see the developed fetus. Now that really, that really hit home about the potentialities of what uh, I'm dealing with here. I, that that one struck me today really deeply. And the whole thing they're talking about the wave collapsing into a particle, that's the cause of the particle becoming in, coming into expression. It's literally... Say that again. That, well, when you, when you go to quantum physics and you talk about everything's potential, it's, there's a wave, and then all of a sudden the wave becomes a particle. They call it the observer effect. But I haven't heard mm-hmm. any where in science that they have explained the observer effect, except that when you turn to observe it, then the wave collapses. But there's nowhere I've been able to find that tells you why the wave collapses. They just call it the observer effect. When I watched Marcel Vogel do that presentation, that's what clicked is, there's the cause of the wave collapsing. I am literally, when I have that what's obvious in me, that accumulation of mind energy in me that is motion inside of me and that motion sets up an energy wave. It is that wave radiating from me interaction, interacting with the potential wave. And when the two meet through resonance, there's that energy exchange and that's the cause of the collapse that they're talking about. That's the that's the cause of that's what's behind the observer effect. It isn't some magical thing while you observe it and the wave collapses and becomes a particle. It's that you're literally you've got brain cells moving in you, content, energetic content that matches that quantum wave and when the two meet there's through resonance an exchange of energy. Remember the, the middle C tuning fork. I hit a middle C tuning fork on a desk. I put it in front of a second middle C tuning fork that's standing still. The second tuning fork does nothing until the wave from the first tuning fork is transferred to the second tuning fork through resonance, and that transfer causes the second tuning fork to, to move. The quantum wave is just a potential wave out there 
And now my mind energy that matches that quantum wave sets the field up that through resonance transfers literally my mind energy to that quanta and causes that quanta collapse and become a particle. That's the observer effect. I don't know anywhere else that piece of information resides. I've never heard it, seen it, found it, or even seen it remotely referred to in the world. But that was the conclusion. That's what I understood for me way back when I watched Marcel Vogel presenting the Delaware camera and being able to take a picture of those high-energy waves. There's a literal high-energy wave. It meets another one that matches, and through resonance, there's a combining of the energies, and that combining of the energy is what causes that collapse to occur. So now we have manifest. And then you put that together with the Aramaic, and the word manifest means obvious. If it's obvious, I have a whole quanta of energy about this thing that's obvious to me, And I'm continuously radiating, sending that energy out into the world. When it finds a potential wave to interact with, we now have what we call manifestation, expression, physicality. So break that down to the fetus. When when I... Wait, 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 before we go to the fetus, hold on, hold on just one second. So, okay, okay. so that's the world that's the world manifest. Now when I apply forgiveness and I transmute or remove that what's obvious to me, when I remove that energy from my mind, I'm no longer contributing that to the quantum world, so that which yesterday was manifest disappears now because I'm no longer empowering it. Now does that make sense? No, because I'm in one of those moments where you're going to have to shake a rock at me. It's like, it's just like oh, okay. So, so okay. yeah. So when I when when I, I throw it back, I got a way to explain it for me. I got a way to explain it. Okay. So, I've got a middle C tuning fork. I hit it on a desk and I put it next to another middle C tuning fork, and what happens to the second tuning fork? It vibrates. It vibrates. Why does it vibrate? Their atomic magnetic structures match through resonance, and there's an exchange of information. So the second tuning fork takes on the energy of the first, and it's empowered to vibrate, to move. Now, what happens if I take a middle C tuning fork and I put it in front of, and I hit it on the desk, and I put it in front of an A tuning fork? Nothing. Nothing. No resonance. No resonance. Nothing happens in that second tuning fork because there's no resonance between it. If I have, and again, take the Aramaic word for manifest being that which is obvious, if a particular experience, it's obvious to me that in certain circumstances that's what's going to happen, I have a great deal of, to use a metaphor, tuning fork energy in me about that which is obvious. 
So I'm now radiating that energy into the world. If the quantum wave is there in the world to interact with that which I'm sending out, then that quantum wave, as according to quantum physics, becomes a particle. Now we have manifestation. We have a world. We have a particle. That makes sense so far? Yes. Okay. Now, let's shift out of that. So, so then when I apply forgiveness and I remove that which is obvious to me, from my mind. In other words, the mind energy, I've forgiven it. It's no longer there. The potential for that terrible thing to happen is still there, but there's nothing in me to interact with it, so there's no manifestation. The quantum wave of that potential event does not collapse because I'm not giving it the energy to cause it to collapse. That's the essence of the miracle. The world just changed. You know, I did this work inside of me, and my God, the world changed. That's a miracle. It's not a miracle. It's just physics. I removed the part of me that caused that to collapse, and now it doesn't collapse around me anymore. It disappears. That's the power of forgiveness. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, let's go to the... Fetus. Obviously, at conception, there is a program within that single cell at conception that is going to tell that cell and every product of that cell for the rest of its life what to do in any given circumstance. And everything that cell is ever going to become stored as an energetic picture, we might call it a vision or a program within the cell, to tell the cell what to do. And that's what that cell will do for the rest of its life unless I add something to the cell that changes the program or I remove something from the cell that changes the program. Makes sense. Yes. Okay. So, day one, a sperm meets an egg. Actually, there are millions of sperm. It's, it's interesting. They've shown that, you know, they think, well, the first sperm gets the worm. That's not true. Many sperm are oftentimes refused by the egg, and it seems like there's one sperm that is meant for that egg and the egg opens just for that one sperm. So there's something different in all these millions of sperm and the egg opens to this one and it enters the cell and fuses. Now there is a program that's going to be partly from mom and partly from dad that will tell that baby's body what to become and how to grow through its whole life. Obviously, the whole program is there at the instant of conception, plus or minus whatever's added or whatever's taken away through that person's life. Like if, if there's a potential for the AP's ABC disease to manifest and someone learns forgiveness and goes in and takes the frequency of the ABC disease out of the structure, then there's no reason for those cells to manifest that ABC disease, whatever it is. So the whole program for that cell's 
whole future in life is in the single cell at conception. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So now all I have to do is have the device to read the program for what's going to happen when one cell splits to two. And if I have the device, I can read the program and go, oh, I can read it and go, that cell's going to split into two. And if I have the device to read it, it's going to split into four. And it's going to split into four billion. All I need is the receiving mechanism, the tuner, that attunes to the, the instruction set that tells that cell what to do. So if I have the tuning mechanism, just like if I'm, if I'm attuning my radio to 900 on the dial, I'm listening to one station. If I tune to 1150, I'm listening to another. If I tune to 1350, I'm listening to another station. If I tune my Delaware camera to one month out from the moment of conception, or pardon me, with the, with the child one month out, if I tune it to there, then I can see what that fetus is going to be in a month. If I change my tuning and I tune it to two months out from conception, I'm going to see what the fetus is going to look like in two months, six months, a year, ten years, whatever's there. And if nothing is added or subtracted from the energetic structure of that cell, I can read the whole thing. All I need, just like I need to be able to tune my radio to those different frequencies, this was a radio frequency or, or a, a, an analogy would be a radio frequency tuner that goes on the front of the camera and you can attune to different frequencies through the tuner on the aperture of the camera. And so if the frequency that it's tuned to is in front of the camera, just like if light energy is there, when I open the aperture, it's going to register on the photographic plate and I get a picture of it. But each one is a different frequency, and when I attune to each frequency, I get to see or experience what's there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's bringing up a lot of stuff. Hey. All systems on go. A lot of, a lot of, yeah, yeah, a lot of thoughts and ideas. We're almost out of time for today. Yes. But we can continue the conversation tomorrow. It's that another day. Awesome. Okay. I made some notes. Well, why don't here you just and yeah, uh, just Make, jot down some thoughts, questions, ideas, what comes to you, and, you know, who knows what you'll have to bring to the conversation that will help me to understand it better and vice versa, and together we create something different. Yeah, the, the, that, there's a couple pieces here today, this whole Marcel thing, and then the, the idea that the egg deflects certain sperm. Whoa, now what all yeah. is in that? That's what I've got going on here. Let's talk about that tomorrow. Yeah, Okay. Sounds good, sir. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Michael. Hey, you're appreciated, sir. Have a blessed one, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye.